I'm just as good as all those hypocrites who go to church all the time and quote all those verses. If there is that great final reckoning in the skies, I'll take my chances. I'm not as good as some like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, but I'm a whole lot better than a lot of those others. I'm sure you have heard this same reasoning, or at least something like it, in some of the discussions you have had when it comes to the subject of eternal judgment. Dave takes us today to Revelation 20, verses 10 to 15. That is the central passage in the scripture of the final judgment. Dave has titled this study, No Grading on the Curve, and he introduces it with some reminiscing about his days in organic chemistry. So let's join him in organic chemistry class. As I look back over my exam career, you know, when I had to take, you know, various exams, I was thinking, what was the hardest exams that I've ever taken in my life? And probably my second year in college as a chemistry major, taking an organic chemistry exam. Do I have any fellow organic chemistry students here with me? You'll remember, and I'll bring back some painful memories. What organic chemistry is about, in fact, you, you just have to memorize thousands of chemical reactions. In fact, the ones that took it really seriously pasted chemical reactions all over their walls and all over the ceiling and just everywhere to try to memorize all these equations. What would happen on a test is they would give you about eight syntheses that you needed to carry it out. You needed to get an end product, and they would give you a list of, of, of compounds that you could use to do that, and you would have to not only know the thousands of chemical reactions and memorize all this stuff, but you'd have to creatively put it all together and come up with these eight syntheses you were supposed to pull off. Now, I remember taking those tests. I'd sit down, and you'd crank it out for about 45 minutes, an hour. And, man, you know, you'd look at the questions at first. You didn't remember anything, but slowly but surely, you'd start to work through the fog. And I'd look around at some of my buddies that were really good in chemistry, and they'd be sailing away, writing out all this stuff. And I'd get really—it was like war. I mean, I would get scared, and, and am I, am I going to make it? And what you would do in these exams— is you would start counting out. Well, I think I got about 25 points on that problem, and I think maybe I got 15 on that problem, and maybe about 20 on the next one. And when you got up over 50, then you'd begin to relax a little bit. You'd say, Dave, why in the world, man? 50, you'd relax a little bit? Yeah. Our organic professor used to let us go out of class while we were taking exams. You couldn't talk to anybody, but you could go get a cup of coffee. And when I got up to about 62 in an organic exam, I used to go get a cup of coffee. You'd say, man, why in the world would you ever do that? Because, man, if you got a 62, you knew at least you had a B. You mean to tell me that, you know, a 62 on an organic chemistry exam was a B? Yeah, because my professor graded on the curve. In fact, man, a good solid A on an organic chemistry exam was often a 65 or a 62 or something like that. And the three or four of us that did pretty well in chemistry that got A's, we would get our 62 and then we'd just go take a break. Because we knew that it was all going to line up, that our teacher would grade on a bell-shaped curve, and all we needed to do was make sure that we were a little bit ahead of the rest of the men and women in our class. Now, what I want to share with you today is that God does not grade on the curve, but how many of you have ever met an unbeliever 
Maybe you've talked to somebody this week and they said, listen, man, I believe that when we die, we're all going to stand before the great whoever is out there. And I want you to know that I feel that I'm just as good as anybody else. And I think that in the end, that God will grit in the curve. And as I look at the mass of humanity, I think that I'm just as good, probably better than the other guy. Anybody ever heard someone talk like that? Well, I want you to listen really carefully. First of all, how do you know how it's going to end up at the end of time? And what makes you think that you and your friends at work and the people that you talk to about this, what makes you think that you have the right to decide what's ultimately going to happen? I want you to understand something about reality. You don't determine reality, and I don't. It doesn't make a blood of difference what I teach you from Dave Wurtzen's insight. And I want to give you a message today that cuts right across political correctness. It's totally out to lunch in the postmodern era, but I've got news for you. It's the truth. And I want you to know something, that though we live in the 21st century, we don't change reality. We're going to talk about a reality one day that's one of the most awesome realities in all the world. In Revelation chapter 20, we study about what's called the great white throne judgment. And this is the ultimate judgment of all the unbelievers. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 begins, And I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence. This is called the great white throne judgment. And what it expresses to us is that this is the ultimate time where everyone that has not responded to God's gift of salvation is going to stand before the living God. And God tells us what's going to be on the exam, what the standard of judgment's going to be. Look what he says. He says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small. So at this great white throne judgment, it doesn't make any difference whether you are a great one of the earth, uh, you know, like a president of the United States or the head of IBM or the head of some big company, the the big person in Dallas, a big football player, or whether you're just a little peon. It, from the great to the small, the dead are standing before this throne. Standing before the throne, and the books were open. Now, those books that were open are a record of everything that these individuals have ever done, everything they've ever thought, everything they could have done, everything that they could have thought. These books are a symbol of God's total omniscience of everything that every human being has ever done. That's what the idea of the books being open is all about. In our computer age, you know, we have computers that can keep track of unbelievable amounts of information about every individual. Well, our computers have nothing on the God of the heavens, the God of the earth, the one that's going to ultimately rule. The God of the Bible is going to know everything about everyone that's standing before him. The books will be open. But notice there's another book. There is another book, it says here, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and hideous gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and hideous were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The very first thing that this, this incredible vision of the great white throne judgment gives us, it gives us the picture of the ultimate responsibility 
that human beings have to the ultimate king of the universe. And it tells us something very important about the universe. First of all, it tells us that the universe flees, the present heaven and earth flee from this throne. Evolution has the idea that matter and energy has always been here. If you study evolution, it's, uh, secular evolution, there's no ultimate question, well, where did original mass and energy come from? It's always been, it always existed. In fact, Carl Sagan began his book, The Cosmos, All That Is, All That Ever Was, All That Ever Will Be, The Cosmos. Revelation says, him who is, him who was, him who will be, it's not the cosmos, it's not the present universe, it is the living God that's being revealed to us in the book of Revelation. The very first thing that Revelation 20 about the great white throne judgment is delivering to us is this incredible revelation is that the things that are around us that we can see are not eternal. If you're going to have your perspective right, if you're going to have your life put together the way it needs to be put together, you and I are going to have to realize that this present universe is not going to last forever. And this isn't something that John just revealed at the end of Scripture, but it's something you can read about way back in the Old Testament. In fact, Psalm 102, verses 25 and 27 reads like this. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth. God was the one who laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. It says they will perish. They will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be discarded. But you remain the same and your years will never, never end. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 34, verse 4, says all the stars of the heavens will be dissolved. There will come a time where you're an astronomer then all the stuff you're studying will just dissolve. The sky will roll back like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Isaiah 51, verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heaven. Look at the earth beneath. Look at the, at the earth beneath, even underneath the ocean. It says the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. Its inhabitants will die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. The Apostle Peter knew those Old Testament passages. And he knew that this present universe wasn't all there is. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and following, he's talked like this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. For a thousand years we learn the millennial kingdom will rule and will reign and Jesus will be here on earth and this present universe will experience what it was supposed to be in God's original creation. But then we studied how they, let, how they allowed Satan freedom again for a short period of time. And Satan goes out and is able to get another rebellion against the living God of the universe. And then we studied about the second coming of Jesus where he is here on earth, he destroys Satan, he ends the millennial kingdom by throwing Satan in the lake of fire, and this great millennial kingdom with Jesus ruling ends in a great crisis as the present universe disappears. Some of you that are into sci-fi and you like thinking about what it would be like to live on other planets, what it would be like to live on other stars, and what it would be like to take journeys into infinite outer space, I got news for you. There's a bigger dimension than that. This whole present reality, the whole present universe that's controlled by the law of thermodynamics and, and that we learn about in science, the Bible's teaching that one day it'll all pass away. The whole present universe, mass and energy that we now are totally bound by and controlled by and we live for, it's all going to pass away. It's going to flee 
from the presence of this throne. It says in 2 Peter, it says, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. When I was a chemistry major in college, I taught you about taking organic exams, but I also took uh, physical chemistry exams. And we learned about the laws of thermodynamics. We learned about how all systems tend towards disorder and, and how the present universe is slowly winding down. And it teaches us here that one day this whole thing is going to go up. It's going to be incinerated. It's going to disappear. And, and you say, well, man, what kind of flame is that going to be? I don't know. It's in a dimension that's beyond us. But the same God that said, let there be light, which is let there be E equals MC squared, because that's what light is, it's energy. The same God that begins the book of Genesis by saying, let there be E equals MC squared, is one day going to say, that's over, that period's over, and we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. But the great white throne judgments in between the dissolving in this present universe and the initiation of a new. What does that say about the way that Dave Wurtzen lives today? What does it say about the way that you live? We're down at Tyler State Park, you know, just yesterday. They talked about a man was in his pickup truck, and, and he was there at the park, and suddenly we heard the sirens go off, and they rush an ambulance in, and just like that, he was gone. He had a heat stroke. He was 90 years of age, and, you know, what a way to go. You know, it's been a good time in Tyler State Park, but he was gone, just like that. And here, we, you know, you're thinking, we're having vacation. You know, people don't die. It vanishes away. One day, all this present universe that we get so bound up on, that we think is so important, one day our physical life is going to end, but one day also this whole present cosmos, this whole present universe is going to end. And that's why the value system of the Bible is don't just live for now. Now, if I could get one truth across to young people and children is this life is not all there is. It's why Ecclesiastes says to young people, remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the evil day comes when you'll find no pleasure in it because it's so hard to believe it. But man, this present world system isn't eternal. And the modern thinking, the modern world viewpoint is constantly telling you this is all there is. Just go for the gusto now. And that's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Revelation 20, because God, your Father, loves you, wants you to understand that a value system built upon this present world is a lie. That's what's wrong with Antichrist. Antichrist built everything on just this world, just this present system, just creating his own kingdom here on earth. And it was in rebellion against the living God. And he had the audacity of thinking that he, a creature, could stand against the one who created all the creatures. That's the ultimate foolishness. And yet in our own lives, we can begin to make our decisions as if, man, this life is all there is. The material possessions I have, that's what's going to count. And it's all going up in smoke. Think about that this week. Everything, every, every piece of money, every home, every truck, everything that I might close, all this present world, one day, poof, it's going to be gone. And what are you going to have left? And a wise person, a biblical person, is taking note of that from the beginning, building their life on things that will never be consumed, things that will be last forever and ever. Now, let's look at the judgment. It talks about being judged by the books and the book. Notice it says that the books were opened and the dead were judged by the books. What does that mean? First of all, I want to share with you who is at this judgment. You see, we put together the teaching of the Word of God. And this is very, very important. As you put together 
the teaching of the Word of God, the Word of God generally says that everybody needs to appear before the living of God to give an account for the deeds done in the flesh. Hebrews says it's appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. But the Bible doesn't teach that all the judgment is the same. For example, at this particular time, at the great white throne judgment, I believe that there are no children of God standing before the judgment throne of God. You say, Dave, why do you believe that? Because Romans 8, verses 1 and following says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set them free from the law of sin and death. This passage, the great white throne judgment, is a passage about death, not about life. It's a passage about the laws of sin and death. It's not a passage about the spirit of life that's been breathed in us. So I don't believe that any born-again believer that's truly received Christ in their heart will stand before the great white throne judgment. You say, well, Dave, will I ever stand before God? Yes, you will. In fact, in Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul appeals to a group of believers that have become very judgmental of one another. Have you ever looked upon another believer, even in our church family, and said, man, their motives are wrong. I don't like their heart is wrong. And I don't even like to come to church because they're just such a hypocrite. Anybody ever felt that in your heart? Those attitudes are from the pit of hell. They produce discord in the family. And what the Apostle Paul said, the Apostle Paul said that we shouldn't do that to one another. We shouldn't judge each other's motives. We shouldn't set ourselves up as a critique of one another's lives. Why shouldn't we do that? Because Paul said, don't you know In Romans 14, don't you know that we all have to give an account to our daddy in heaven, to the father in heaven? You see, when we start judging one another, we're like little children who mom and dad are away and one of the children starts taking over the parental responsibilities and starts disciplining the other kids. How many of you have ever been with your siblings and one of your other siblings tried to take over mom and dad's role? How many of you like that? Not too good, right? That's what we do in the body of Christ when we start judging each other's motives. We start judging each other's lives. We start feeling that we're God. We're not. I want every one of you to know it'll be purifying for your soul as a believer. You are going to one day stand before the Lord. And when that will take place, it teaches us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the dead in Christ are going to be raised first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up. 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches the same thing. It says we will be snatched away. That's where the idea of the rapture takes place. You see, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 teach about a resurrection of believers. And I believe that that will take place before the tribulation period starts. If you want to get some of the biblical insights that I shared about why I believe that, you can look at the, the message I gave on the Church of Philadelphia uh, in earlier in our study of Revelation. I did a whole message on why I believe that the rapture takes place before the tribulation period. But I want you to know also, there are those who believe that the church is taken out in the middle of tribulation. They're called mid-tribulationists. There's those that hold that the, that the church is taken At the end of the tribulation period, they're caught up to be with the Lord in the clouds, and then they come immediately down and begin to rule with Christ. This is called a post-tribulationist. Right now, in light of what I'm teaching you, whether or not you're pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, or in-between-trib, whatever you might be, you're still holding that the church is resurrected 
before the millennium begins. And I want you to know that that's not a resurrection where you face the judgment, the condemnation of God. You will face evaluation time. You will face a time where, according to Romans chapter 14, also first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, says that every one of us need to give an account of ourselves before the Lord. So every one of you, myself included, needs to realize that we are going to have to give an account to our heavenly daddy for the way that we lived here on earth. Now that's not thinking of ourselves separated from him because we need to we need to live in Christ. The only way that we can produce fruit is by abiding in the vine. So I don't want any one of you to say, well, man, I need to get busy so I perform good for God. No, you're going to be evaluated. Did you take advantage of the love relationship that you had with Jesus? Did you open your heart and let God's spirit produce the fruit of the spirit in your life? Did you respond to the amazing grace that was in you? Did you allow this intimacy with Christ to keep growing through a lifetime? And if so, you're going to have a great intimacy with the Lord. The reward in heaven is not like getting goodies, like little pieces of candy, but it's like having intimacy, a greater closeness, a greater immediacy to the presence of God. All of us will be living in bliss, but there will be those who, because they were faithful in the relationship here on earth, they will have a greater intimacy with God in heaven. And that's something you should hunger for. You don't want to go to heaven by the skin of your teeth as, as you know, warmed over the flames of hell. You want to be responding to the message of grace and responding to relationship and intimacy with Christ. So all the believers in the church are resurrected, I believe, before the tribulation period they're taken to heaven, and there's somewhere during the time period before they're what we call the Bema of Christ, the reward stand of Christ. And it's not a throne room that decides the difference between heaven and hell. It's what decides degrees of intimacy with God in heaven. You got that? Now, what about the unbelieving dead, like Daniel, like Moses, the unbelieving dead of the Old Testament? When were they raised? The book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 1, Michael has a tremendous conflict with Satan and is able to defeat him. And it talked about him being cast to the earth and then there being great conflict. The book of Revelation picked up on that same conflict in, Reve in Revelation, chapter 12. And then we had the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. And then we had Revelation 19 where the white horseman comes back. I believe that that fulfills Daniel 12's prophecy where the great deliverer comes. And Re Daniel 12 speaks about the resurrection of all those that have trusted in God, believed in the promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament period. So that would include Adam and Eve who weren't Jewish, but they looked forward to the promise of God. It would include Melchizedek. As you look at the Old Testament, some of your unbelieving friends will say, you mean to tell me that nobody was related to God in the thousand of years before Christ came? No, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that men like Job, who was probably not Jewish, men like Melchizedek, Naaman the Syrian, Jonah was able to preach to the whole city of Nineveh, an entire pagan city, came to believe in Yahweh, and thousands of people responded to Yahweh. They're going to be in heaven. When will they be resurrected? I believe they'll be resurrected before Christ instigates his millennial kingdom, and then they will rule with him, just like he promised them in the Old Testament scriptures. Also, we learned the last time we were together that those that had been beheaded 
because of their commitment to Christ. The martyrs were raised when Jesus came back to set up his kingdom, and they were given their just reward. So we have the tribulation saints that are resurrected. If you add it all together, you have Old Testament saints resurrected at the end of the tribulation period. You have all the church-age saints resurrected in the rapture. What that means is if you do the math, that means that the only people left to be resurrected are the unbelieving dead from all the ages. And that's what John meant if you looked earlier in the passage that talked about blessed and holy is the one who takes part in the first resurrection. Chapter 20, verse 7. It says, They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life. They were resurrected and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now look at the next verse. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. What the Bible's teaching us is that the first resurrection is a resurrection to life, a resurrection to reward, a resurrection to ruling with Christ and being with him. And blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. And I pray that every one of you will have a part in this first resurrection the resurrection to life. The good news is that there is no reason why you cannot be confident that this will be the case. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, paid the full penalty for your sins when he died on the cross. He removed all the barriers that would keep you out of heaven, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. All you need to do to be certain that you will be raised to eternal life is to confess your sins to Jesus and open your heart to receive his gift of forgiveness. If you have never done this, why don't you talk to him and receive him into your life? Be sure to join us for the conclusion of this study, No Grading on the Curve, on our next encounter with the truth.